You're listening to audio from Redemption Church of Houston. We are a people who believe that Jesus has invited everyone into his radically inclusive, world-altering way of love. That means that when we gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or in homes throughout the week, you are welcome here. Regardless of your social status, gender, race, sexual orientation, or politics, we want you to fully and actually join, grow, worship, and serve with us. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, Jesus invites you into his radical love just the way you are. And so do we. Church, how are we doing today? Good to see y'all. Um, on a special, odd summer Sunday. Uh, so this morning we're going to do a Q&A, and uh, it's questions that you guys have sent in over the last several weeks about what happens after death and some of the things that we've been talking about. Um, but if you're here, you're new to redemption, this isn't always the format of our sermons, uh, just know that this is kind of a unique Sunday, but I love doing this because it's so much of who we want to be. One of our core values is exploration. And what that means is like this is actually really a safe community to ask questions, to doubt, to struggle with unbelief. Um, there are no tried answers, there are no right? Thus saith the Lord's. Um, as your pastor, I will do my best to guide you and direct you into what I think is what all people and, or all Christians in all places at all times have agreed on and into what I personally think is right, but I'll try to make those two, two lines uh, distinct enough for you to know when it's just me saying, hey, this is what I think versus, hey, this is what the church historically has like stood on as, as their foundation of faith. And so you'll see some of that today. All that to say, if you're new here, welcome. We're glad you're here. This is really a safe place for you to explore Jesus. Like actually and really, we do this here on Sunday mornings. We also do this in our hub groups throughout the week. Um, this is not a place where you have to hide your questions, your doubts, your curiosities. We are a community of Jesus um, who are pursuing connection and redemption through grace sharing and exploration. And so we entered into this series we called After Death to explore, wait, what does it mean to believe in Jesus? What does it mean to be saved? What are we actually saved from? And what happens when we die? Some of this was uh, stirred up because I went to a funeral and it was just the kind of stereotypical conservative Southern funeral where the entire conversation centered on a loved one going to heaven when they died. Um, and so this was really a celebration and kind of glossed over the pain and the grief that people were really actually experiencing over the fact that their loved one has died. And there's this weird like tension between, wait, but they're, it's better, right? Because they're in heaven, but they're dead, and so that's good, right? And so we wrestled with that. The other reason that this kind of came up, we, we do three, we call them theological foundation classes. We do three of them throughout the year. The first one that we do in the fall is on the scriptures, the second one that we do in the spring is on, wait a second, so what is it that all Christians in all places at all times have come to believe and agree on? Um, and then the third one, which starts here, uh, I think in a week, 
is going to be on, wait, so if that's what all Christians in all places at all times have believed, then how in the world did we get here? It'll be a fun one, an interesting one, um, but that is to come. Why did I bring that up? I don't remember. Oh, yeah, so the reason that this whole series came to, to be was because in that class, we had uh, just a really great conversation that centered on death and resurrection, and that went on for several classes where a number of people who have been in Redemption Church and have heard us say this from the stage over and over and over again, for whatever reason, for the first time ever, the light bulb really clicked that, oh yeah, death is actually bad, and our hope is not going to heaven when we die, but is actually really bodily resurrection. So we talked about that, we talked about heaven, we talked about hell, and we talked about, well, then what exactly is life? And now today, we're gonna go through most of your questions and kind of grapple with, some of these really great and challenging questions that you guys sent in. So we're going to start with a really simple one um, that is kind of a summary of the whole series, and it's simply this question, what does it mean to be saved? And some of you asked it in this way, could you please summarize how you would share the hope of God in like brief? That's not funny, okay? That is, hold on, that was, there was no pause for laughter there, okay? Um, something that would replace the Romans road, kind of the A, B, C, D mindset that I grew up with. Great question. Another way that someone else put it, is there a way to summarize the correct version of the good news of Jesus and a brief way to share with people? Uh, that's twice that you've mentioned brief. I don't know why you would do that. Um, so, so here's kind of the reality. I, I think that any time we're being brief with this, we have to understand that we're taking something that's very nuanced and robust and we're leaving something significant out of it. The other thing that we have to wrestle with is when I say certain words, I might mean one thing and you might hear something else. And so, right, if I go and share, hey, we're all sinners and Jesus died for our sins and rose so that we could be saved from our sins, what I mean when I say that might mean something completely different to you when you hear it. And so what I wanna say off the bat is, yeah, absolutely, I'm gonna give you the brief version, don't worry, but let's, come on, let's not kid ourselves, it's me, so I gotta make this long and complicated. But, but can we acknowledge that so much of this really actually needs to be done in relationship? That, that having an ongoing conversation and so much of what we ought to be about as a community is not just telling but showing and not just shouting at from the inside out but actually inviting into into this way of being that exists, this, this way of inhabiting the good news in this world here and now. Also, this is an appropriate time to tell you that I have not pre-written all of the, uh, any of the answers, so this is gonna be like off the cuff, so that'll be fun. Um, this is gonna be a disaster, it'll be great. So what does it mean to be saved in brief? I think there's, uh, to, to talk about this in 2023 in Houston, Texas, I think we have to change some of the language and some of the, the, the big ideas that we maybe grew up with. I think the, the biggest thing that we have heard is that to be saved means to be saved from our sins, which we have heard as morality, or and to be saved from hell, which is the punishment for our immorality, right? If that's not exactly what Jesus is doing, what is he saving us from? Uh, the short answer is he's saving us from sin, death, and the devil, which is a very different uh, understanding than what most of us grew up with. So we have to back up, and one, this is always gonna depend on who I'm talking to, where they're coming from, kind of what their worldview is, what they think about God, where they're at. Do they grow up evangelical? Do they grow up Catholic? Are they an atheist? Like, what does that look like? 
But I always want to start back at the very beginning. When God created humanity, he created humanity good. That humanity is a good and beautiful creature that was put in a good and beautiful world, and all we needed to do is look around and say something has gone terribly wrong. And that the, the history of the church, the scriptures and the testimony of the people who have followed Jesus and of Jesus himself are telling us that something has gone wrong in that good and beautiful world. That this world, in all of its goodness and in all of its beauty, is actually really broken. And so there are, uh, the way that the Jews talked about it is there are these two ages There was the good, beautiful, created world, and then this new age entered in that was an age of darkness and death. That age of darkness and death is both outside of us, oppressing us, but it also comes from within us as we see ourselves being the oppressor or the violator or the perpetrator of darkness, death, or sin. And so what we need to be saved from is not necessarily God's punishment, but is the reality that we live in this world of death, that we live in this world of darkness, that we find ourselves doing and behaving in ways that are wreaking havoc on the people around us and are wreaking havoc on us. And so that what Jesus is doing is he is, one, actually changing the dynamics of how the world works. So he's ushering in this new age called the kingdom of God that is instituted by his death and resurrection on the cross, or death on the cross and resurrection from the grave. So that we can now enter into this new way of being, this new age that will one day come in full, but has already begun here and now by, among his people by his spirit. You tracking with me? That is a very different version of the good news than, hey, you've done some bad things, Jesus is going to forgive you for it so that you can go to heaven when you die, right? And so, right, depending on who I'm talking about, I might change the way that I answer that, Um, but in brief, I would tell the story. God created things good. Humanity has broken it. We experience this. You experience this brokenness in profound ways here and now, both in what's being done to you and what you are doing to others, Jesus has actually done something to change who we are so that we can go about life in a new way of being. This new way of being has already begun here and now, but is still one day coming in full where peace will finally actually rule the earth and be, uh, I don't know, the way that everything works. So that would be how I would uh, summarize that. Super crystal clear, right? A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, all the way to Z, right? Okay. So the next question was, um, what does it mean then to live a redeemed and resurrected life? Uh, Someone else asked it this way. If heaven is already on earth, then what should we be striving for now? So what I would say here is that heaven is not actually already on earth, that it is what theologians call the already and the not yet that we have glimpses of it and pictures of the kingdom of God here and now, but this is not the kingdom of God. If this is the kingdom of God, we should all go home very sad and disappointed because like, come on, Jesus, really? Like actually, pandemics and like, yeah, crazy stuff. So then what does it mean to live a redeemed and resurrected life? What does it mean to live into the kingdom of God that has already begun but is not yet fully here? The short answer is love. Right? It's, it's, hey, Jesus, um, what do I need to do to be saved? You need to love God and love neighbor. The, the New Testament, what, what Paul and Peter and John are, are spending all of their time writing letters to the earliest church about 
is not necessarily, hey, you need to make sure you've got all your theology correct. It's no, 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 no. Your theology is jacking up how you treat each other. You need to fix your theology and start loving each other. The kingdom of God is a kingdom of love. It is a kingdom of inclusion. It is a kingdom where tax collectors and zealots sit across the table from one another and share a meal. If you don't understand the context of that, a tax collector would have been a Roman, a a Jewish uh, religious person who is sold out to the Roman Empire to collect taxes from their own people on behalf of the enemy. And a zealot is literally a religious zealot that is a terrorist. We would call them that today in the United States of America. They were, had a sword, and they were like, our job is to overthrow the Romans through violence, through force. And Jesus invites them to his table, and there they sit, and he says, now love one another. Forgive one another. You know what? Wash each other's feet. This is what it means to inhabit the kingdom of God. You get this beautiful picture. And so all of our life is spent actually really loving. This is what resurrection life looks like. And this gets really hard because there's going to be times where it's really hard to love and where loving is not the most, that's not in your best interest. That you're going to love someone and it will actually cost you. Like your life would have been better off if you had chosen not to love in that way. Uh, I know there's probably now a million more questions about that. Now, wait a second. What about, there's tons of whatabouts. We're going to spend all next year, um, our next year is going to be called the year at Jesus' table. And we're going to spend the entire year, kind of like how we did this year, we did our year of hope. Next year, we're going to come together and and look at what is Jesus actually inviting us into? What does it mean to be, uh, to inhabit the kingdom of God here and now? What does it mean for us to sit around the table of Jesus and actually live into what Jesus has invited us into? And we'll deal with a lot of those, yeah, but what abouts? Okay, so that's what we should be striving for now. Um, And the way that we do it, sorry, because I'm a pastor and I'm long-winded, the way that we do it is the way that Jesus did it, it's cruciform, right? So it is It is giving of myself for the sake of others, knowing that God has got my back and will one day raise the dead and call those who have done evil and violence to uh, to account for the evil and violence that they have done. Is there a second coming of Jesus? Or did it already happen? So fun fact, this is uh, a question that has been asked for the 2,000 years of the church. Paul Um, We believe Paul, some scholars say no, it was someone else, but I think it was Paul, actually wrote a letter to the church of Thessalonians, the first and the second letter of Thessalonians in your New Testament, is addressing this exact issue. Apparently, some people had shown up in Thessalonica and were like, hey, y'all missed it. Jesus came back, he resurrected the dead, and y'all are stuck like Chuck, sorry. It's exactly what he says, a quote. I don't know, I don't know what to tell you. Oh, I I can't make this stuff up. And so Paul goes to great lengths to say, like, essentially, like, is this the kingdom of God? Are we living in shalom? Are we living in uh, the realm of love? No, of course not. That's ridiculous. And still continue to have hope, still continue to hold out, still continue to be this, like, colony of life in an empire of death. This is what you're called into because hope is coming. Help is on the way. Jesus is coming back and will one day establish his full and final reign over the earth. Um, 
So one of the things that we're going to deal with in our class on Jesus and evangelicalism that starts next week is, is this unique flavor of theology. It's what most of us might be familiar with as rapture theology. It's this idea that is actually pretty unique to the 20th century that Jesus is going to come back now. Oh, okay, no, but maybe now. Right? And so what, what ends up happening is this, this idea that Jesus' return is imminent and at any second and at any moment made the most important thing saving souls. And it drove the missions movement. It drove evangelicalism exists because of this particular theology. All the mainline churches are out there trying to like serve the poor because they're not worried about the rapture. Whereas evangelicals are like, no, forget the food. We need to save their soul because maybe it's now, right? Why am I bringing this up? I don't even know. Oh, yeah. So, so this idea that like, did Jesus already come back? I don't know. Maybe so. Um, that, this is not a new question. The, the question that we need to ask ourselves is, has Jesus established his kingdom in full here and now? Um, and, and I don't think it'll be unclear, Whatever it looks like, and there's, right, there's, who knows? But whatever it ends up looking like, I, I, rest assured, I think it will be good, because I think Jesus is good, and I think it will be more beautiful and more life-giving than anything we can imagine. And so until that day, we yearn for it, and we long for it, and like we talked about last week, we say, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, establish your peace here on earth. So then the question is, well, before Jesus comes back and raises the dead, what happens when I die now? And so we had several questions along these lines. What happens between death and resurrection? Is there a place that the righteous or the unrighteous go until then? Some people talk about, or the scriptures talk about this as sleep. Catholics talk about purgatory. Others say heaven. Does this really matter? Um, so I think it matters, but I, I think the emphasis of the New Testament, and, and once, you see it, once you see it, you can't unsee it, the emphasis of the New Testament is not going to heaven when you die. The emphasis of the New Testament is resurrection. And once you have that in your head and you go and you read the scriptures, you're going to be like, oh my gosh, this is all over the place. How did I not see this? That said, the New Testament does seem to describe this intermediate state between life or between death and resurrection where we will be in the presence of God. Disembodied and still yearning for our full salvation because we're still dead. We talked about this two weeks ago. And so what is that like? I, I don't know. <laughs> I do know that to be in the presence of God is a good thing but I know that God says to be disembodied from my physical body is not what it means to be human. And so that's not quite as good as it gets. And so we can actually really have hope that those we have lost, those who have died in Christ are now in the presence of God. We talked about this when we talked about heaven. There's this really cool idea of heaven being like the temple. So you've got like the outer edges and then it gets closer and closer to the, the holy of holies where God's presence is. And the idea that the New Testament authors are trying to paint, whether it's literal or metaphorical, doesn't matter. The idea is that those who have passed on and entered into heaven are in that holy of holies, in the bosom of God, next to him in the fullness of his glory, which is a good and beautiful thing. It also means 
right? There is this, well, what about those who aren't in Christ? And the suggestion seems to be that the further away from God you get, the further away from life you get, the further into death you get, the further away from goodness you get, the further into evil you get. The further away from light you get, the further into darkness you get. You feel me? So this is why you get to the very last chapter of the Bible in Revelation chapter 21 or 22. I can't remember what the number is. Very last chapter. It's like, oh, and then the city came down. It's New Jerusalem, and it's great, and they wiped away every tear. And oh, yeah, and by the way, outside of the city are the liars and the fornicators and the adulterers. And you're like, wait, hold up. How are they here? What are they doing here in God's new creation? Um, And I don't know that that's a literal, like, location thing. I think that's saying that there are those who are inside and those who are outside, and that those who are outside are experiencing perpetual death, and those who are inside are experiencing perpetual life. Now I'm seeing your faces, and there's like a hundred more questions that y'all are going to like rapidly send me. Please do. Um, yeah. So what Catholics are doing with purgatory, and I know some of you grew up Catholic, so you can please correct me if I'm wrong. I did not grow up Catholic, but this is my understanding of purgatory. So their idea of like you cannot be in the holy of holies until you yourself are holy, until you're a saint. And so you should be striving for sainthood in this life but most of us are gonna die before we reach it. So as, if we die before we reach it, we will spend a certain amount of time being refined. And this refinement, for some of us, would be really painful because we're kind of like, you know, you know who you are and what you do, right? <laughs> and for those of us, we were like, oh man, we just need like another day and we would have been there. And it's just kind of like cruisy. And you're like, okay, cool, I'm here in purgatory but that they will eventually go on into the Holy of Holies. And so whenever you see the Catholic Church saying, Mother Teresa is a saint, they are saying, like, they go through this whole process and this whole assessment of like, oh, yeah, no, 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 she's in the presence of God right now for sure, right? Uh, so that is purgatory. Does it really matter? I don't, I don't know that it does. Whether you think that our souls just go to sleep until the resurrection, whether we think that we go into the presence of God until resurrection, Uh, whether you think purgatory is a thing until resurrection. Um, At the end of the day, I don't think the invitation of Jesus changes because I think we can actually really experience heaven or hell here and now. That, that, That dynamic is not something we're waiting for. We can live into life, live into the kingdom and experience it here. We can also live into hell and experience it here. Bitterness, unforgiveness, violence, etc. Okay. How are we doing? Good? Okay. So this is this is good. If if we if you have a random question you want to raise your hand, I probably shouldn't have said that, but you can really if you've got one. Um, I've got uh, a couple more. Some of them are big, some of them will take me just a couple minutes. So let's talk about hell for just a second. So There are three ways that we can think about hell. We talked about this with our hell series or our hell sermons in this series. There is eternal conscious torment, which tends to be the traditional view, but actually has pretty limited scriptural evidence. So some of the scriptures that we would point to as saying, hey, this is eternal conscious torment have their problems. That doesn't mean that eternal conscious torment is off the table. And if you believe that you don't love Jesus or whatever, like that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that is not the only orthodox position. In fact, there is no real orthodox position on the issue of hell, except that God's judgment and justice are a thing. Um, The second one is called annihilationism, or 
uh, conditional mortality. This is the idea that when a human being dies, they go to some form of hell, uh, whether it's instantaneous or over a period of time, they eventually become undone and no longer exist. Uh, what makes this view pretty palatable for a lot of Christians is it, it holds in tension this idea that like, God is not just going to let people get away with pedophilia and genocide who have rejected him and will continue to reject him and then one day are going to die and God's just going to be like, oh, well, it's fine. And so what happens to, to that type of person? What does God do about that type of evil? And so for a lot of folks, they read things like John 3.16, whoever believes in him will not perish. That will not perish has a definite end to it. And they see this as a final destruction. Whether that's an instantaneous, you die and you're dead and nothing else happens, that's it. Or whether that is a, you experience some sort of period of whatever before death. Um, but the scriptures call this the second death. This idea that if you are apart from God and you continue to refuse to be apart from God, then you will experience this final ultimate death that is, right, it's bad because death is bad. Which then leads to our third option on the table here, which is called Christian universalism, which is not a great term because you hear universalism and it turns into like, that means it's whatever, man. It's all cool. God's just like, it's cool, man. Just vibes all day. I said I wasn't going to say that last time and I said it again. There it is. Um, but that's not actually how this works. So, so for even, even for Christian universalists, they believe in hell. And either hell is going to be empty or hell is temporary until you're eventually conformed and changed into like someone who would actually choose God and then are brought back into God. And so in their mind, when they get to the end of the book of Revelation, all those liars and adulterers will eventually change their ways because they're experiencing all of the death that exist outside of the city and they'll come into the city. And so there's this great book who... Uh, Bradley Yersak is the author. We put the book on the back of the shelf back there. Don't agree with everything he says, but there's this really beautiful clause at the end of that chapter. It describes this new Jerusalem. It describes these outsiders who are like in perpetual death. And then it says that the gates of her city will never be shut. That there will always be an invitation by a loving God to those outside to come in. Doesn't that sound like Jesus? And so, right, whether this is how it's going to happen, uh, no one knows exactly how it's going to happen, but these are the three options on the table. So do I think that people who have never heard, of, heard the news of Christ go to hell? And is there scriptural support for this? I'm going to answer the second part of the question first. So where this idea comes from mainly is Romans chapter 10, verses 13, 14, and following. Um. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. How can they call upon someone who's not, who they've not heard? How can they hear if someone doesn't preach? And how can they preach if someone doesn't sin? And this is the whole like foundational verse for the missions movement. That, that we have to go out and tell, otherwise people are going to enter into condemnation. Now, if you think that condemnation only exists, or sorry, if hell only exists after you die, then that makes sense. But if you begin to understand that what Jesus is saying is, no, 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 you're already living in condemnation. You're already experiencing death. Then the call to believe and call out to Jesus for life is not a call for what happens when you die. It's a call for right here and right now. Do you want to enter the kingdom of God here and now because you can follow Jesus? So do I think that people who have never heard go to hell. 
<laughs> my short answer. I trust God with that, and I trust that he is far more compassionate than I am, far smarter than I am, and far more generous and just than I am. And so I leave that to him, and I don't insist either way because I just don't know. I don't shrug my shoulders and go, nah, surely he wouldn't do that. That's, that doesn't sound like, I don't know, right? Um, okay, what do Jews believe about hell, and what does this mean for Christians? I like this question. Um, I, I can't tell you exactly what modern-day Jews believe about hell, but what I can tell you is that what they believed about hell in the first century makes so much sense of what Jesus is doing and saying because we hear Jesus saying, like, we, we see Jesus as, as world-building for us when actually what Jesus is doing is entering into a world that's already built and communicating within it in a way that they can understand. And so the way that they understand hell is kind of like a purgatory system where everyone who dies goes down to Sheol, and as you're down in Sheol, this place of the dead, or Hades is what it's called in Greek, you go to this place of the dead, and there's like a crossroads, and there's people that are going to meet you there. If you've been righteous, right, this is the Pharisees. They've followed the law. They've given their lives to Torah. They've done everything they can to try and usher in the kingdom of God. You get escorted by an angel to the right into the bosom of Abraham. But if you've been unrighteous, this is the Gentiles, the Romans, the unfaithful uh, Jews, the tax collectors, the adulterers, the woman caught in adultery, right? They get taken by demons and dragged off to the left. So they're in the same place, but the, the, their experiences are very different. And on one side, there's, there's this chasm between, and on one side is all of the unrighteous people who are experiencing the torment of the, the fire that will one day come. Um, and they look across the chasm to see all these righteous people that are in the bosom of God or Abraham. And this is exactly like the idea that Jesus speaks into when he tells the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And we, we read the parable of the rich man and Lazarus as a, oh, so this is what hell is. That's like reading the parable of the good tenant and the bad tenant and be like, oh, this is what economy is. Like, no, don't do your farming based on a parable that Jesus said. Don't uh, base your economy off of the things that Jesus said necessarily. That's not his point. His point was, no, no, Pharisees, you are, um, you are being unrighteous and you are hoarding your wealth while people around you are suffering. And those types of people, as we all know, based on our current understanding of hell, are going to the bad place. And so Jesus is neither saying, no, 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 this isn't how it works, nor is he saying, no, no, this is how it works. Instead, what he's doing is he's using the parable to get them to do something different here and now in this world and in this life. And so that's essentially what the Jews believed about hell. Um, okay, we've got some special questions here. I'm a special guy, and we're going to deal with these very quickly. Except for one of them is not going to be so quick, but that's fine. Does the idea of the kingdom of God on earth and a garden spreading from Eden before the fall hold up with evolution? I love that y'all think I have any clue as to anything about evolution. That's so flattering. I appreciate that. Um, so I, I don't know, right? So I don't know enough about evolution to like um, confidently tell you, oh, here's all the ways. Here are the mistakes that I have seen made on both sides, Okay. On one side, I've seen Christians absolutely poo-poo science altogether. Not that we've experienced anything like that in the last five years. 
I've seen on the other side, we've taken science and we have elevated it to a place where anything we experience and know through science now must be true. But if we rewind the clock 100 years where anything we experience and learn through science must be true, is it still? And so if we fast forward another 100 years or another 500 or God forbid another 1,000 years, all of those things that we are so certain about, scientifically speaking, because you know we're scientists, how much of them will actually still be holding up? And, and so that, that is not to poo-poo science at all. That is to keep science in its bounds and in its lane and not to make it the thing that makes sense of all of the universe because science is not intending to make sense of all of the non-physical universe. Science can tell you what your brain does when you love, but it cannot tell you why you want love so badly. And if it does give an answer, it's a pretty dissatisfying one. You want love the same reason you want donuts. It's an endorphin rush, right? Well, that feels like, I don't know. I feel like it's more than that, right? I can't tell you why scientifically. I just feel like there's something there. And so does the idea of a kingdom of God on earth and a garden spreading from Eden before the fall hold up with evolution? I think it absolutely can. I don't think that you have to throw the baby out with the bathwater on either direction. I think you can absolutely hold to a very high view of scripture and you can hold to a very high view of science and you can hold them simultaneously um, and faithfully. So there was a follow-up to this. So this is all kind of the same line of questions. If you believe in evolution, then can you also believe in a physical garden that held Adam and Eve? So again, don't know enough about evolution here, but I also am like mystical enough to be like, yeah, sure, why not? If Jesus can come back from the dead, which is scientifically impossible, right? I think, right? <laughs> like as far as I know, and not like, oh, he, we thought he was dead and we buried him, but then he came back to life like six hours later. Turns out, that's not what I'm talking about. Like he was dead three days, rotting in the ground, came back to life. If that happened, then yeah, sure, God can do whatever. And I know that's, that's like a really naive, maybe a really naive way of thinking about it, but if that is true, it literally changes everything. And this is so much of what we are being invited into as the people of God, that Jesus has come down to show us this is the truth that matters. This is the reality that matters. And everything else out there might be good and might be true in its own regard, but unless it leads back to me, it is ultimately gonna lead to death. And so because of Jesus, not because of what the Bible says, but because of Jesus, I'm gonna say, yeah, you yeah, know, something happened. I don't know if it was a literal garden with a literal like couple named Adam and Eve, but something happened that Jesus is coming down to address in his world and in us. So do we need a physical garden and a real Adam and Eve to require a savior? No, we don't. So a bunch of theologians take Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 as like, uh, metaphorical is probably the, the simplest way to describe it that Adam and Eve are these archetypes of all of humanity. And so you could have evolution and you can still have these archetypes and both of those things can be true at the same time, right? But we still haven't found the missing link. So I don't, you know, sorry, okay. <laughs> Didn't read the audience well on that one, my bad. Um, so if, if 
we, the fall in the garden, are a metaphor. Why are we born with sin and created dead with a need to be born again? So if you just have evolution, then we don't, right? If, if, if it's just evolution, if humanity has just evolved as a species out of whatever, and we are continuing on this trajectory of evolving into whatever, then I think Nietzsche is right. But here's the problem. If you really live into that story, what do you do with evil? Why is racism bad? If, if your tribe is trying to, uh, to improve and evolve to the next stage, who cares what other tribe it mashes on the way to progress? If that story is true, I, I don't know how you can really actually and robustly address that without this idea that, no, 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 there's a whole other version of the story that God tells us, and that is that all human beings were created in God's image. And all human beings, regardless of what they can produce, how wealthy they are, what their social status is, what their race is, what their gender is, doesn't matter. They are all inherently valuable because they're human beings. Evolution doesn't necessarily give you that story, as far as I know. Um, so then, yeah, I think if the fall and the garden are a metaphor, though, I don't think you necessarily lose that. So that just because it's metaphorical doesn't mean it's not true. So a uh, really silly way of illustrating this, when Jesus tells a parable and he's like, I don't know, the summary is, hey, you should take care of the poor. Just because he said it, said it in a parable doesn't mean that we shouldn't take care of the poor. Right? And so if there's this metaphor that's pointing to something that's real and true, the metaphor doesn't undermine the true thing that the metaphor is pointing to. Okay, so that was the complicated one that I hope I sufficiently butchered. Um, why do you think we have souls that are separate from our bodies? Um, I don't think we do. Right? So I think that what it means to be human is God takes dirt, material, physical, and he... He breathes spirit, breath, life. Those are all the same words in Hebrew and in Greek. He, so he, to be physical and spiritual is not like these two separate things that exist within us. It is us. It is what it means to be human, which is why the whole story of evolution by itself is not the full what, like, story of what humanity actually is. We're missing this entire element of whatever you want to call it, metaphysics, this desire for communion, um, this need for community, all of these things that evolution simply cannot explain yet, right? Um, so then, why do we talk about souls? Because something happens when we die, and we don't seem to stop existing when we die. And so a, a part of us, we call it the soul. What it actually is it? I don't know. Our consciousness? Maybe it's an actual thing? I don't know, but it goes somewhere, and it's in the presence of God and it eventually will come back and be reunited with our physical self. That is resurrection. Okay, last two, really, sorry, last one, and then uh, we'll wrap this up. Okay, so personally, I've always felt overwhelmed by the idea of eternity, and yet this is something we're supposed to anticipate. So there's actually a, a Christian word for this. Um, I can't remember what it is exactly. 
something like the tremendum. It's Latin, of course, the Catholics. And it's this idea that whenever, as human beings, whenever we confront an expanse, so this could be you get up to the edge of a cliff and there's just like a canyon below you, or you get to the edge of, of the beach and you look out and all you can see is just open sea. And if we really like sit in that, all of a sudden we realize how small we are and how vast and big everything else around us is. And so I, I think if you're experiencing this like, hey, the idea of eternity doesn't really sound great. It actually is pretty scary. I, I like I'm with you. I think that's actually a good thing. I think though, so much of what we're bumping into when we, when we think about eternity and we kind of like, are like, I don't know, is eternity in this state of deadness. Eternity in this current condition of like, ah, we just can't seem to get our act together in some pretty significant ways. If instead we live into um, this idea that eternity is not going to be experienced as like this doldrum, like, oh, gosh, here we are, another cloud again. How's it going, Larry? I don't know. Let's play a C, and we're going to sing to God again. It's been 1,655 years. I guess we're going to do this for another eternity, forever, whatever. Let's just keep singing. Like, that sounds like hell, not like heaven, if we're being really honest. So there's this, uh, there's this story that's told about Jesus. It's... Um, legendary, so I don't know how true it is, but I think it captures this idea pretty nicely. So apparently, Jesus is with the disciples, and they're talking about the kingdom of God, and Jesus says, when the kingdom of God gets here, on every, like, vine of grapes, there will be a thousand branches, and on every branch, there will be 10,000, what are they called, bushels? I don't know, the thing of grapes? Sure. Cluster, thank you, thank you. No one goes grocery shopping. And on every cluster of grapes, there will be 100,000 grapes. And from every grape, there will be 100,000 liters of juice. And it will be the finest grape juice and the finest wine. And we will drink from it forever and ever and ever. And now we're talking. <laughs> right? Like, hold up. Hold on. No one said anything about wine. There's going to be wine at the party? Let's do this. But it's this idea that we have that... Eternity is spent in an immaterial state, doing immaterial things forever, when it's probably closer to like a real restful, rejuvenating vacation. Not the kind that you're like, you know, three, four days in, you're like, I don't know, we've kind of done all the things on the resort, uh, our stomach kind of hurts, we're having bathroom issues, let's go home. <laughs> but like a real one where you're like, I don't know, there's those moments, right, where you experience like a, a real wholesome Christmas or a real wholesome moment with a deep friend or a family member, and you're like, this moment right here, hours went by, and it felt like a few minutes, and I want to get back there somehow. I think that is something like what Jesus is going to usher in and can begin to usher in for us here and now. And when we talk about that, all of a sudden it sounds a little bit better, a little bit more beautiful. So... Um, if you ask that question, I don't know if I really answered your question well, but hopefully I did. Okay, last thing I'll say about this. So I, someone asked this recently, and I want to address it and to just say, like, this is on my radar, and I would love to do this. So someone talked about our, uh, their kids have been asking a lot of these questions, um, even their eight and nine-year-old, or like forms of them. Is there a way to hold a kid's Q&A? I would love to hold a kid's Q&A. I don't know exactly how we can do that. Christine is literally just finding out about it. As, 
as my mom is being escorted to the back, I'm assuming to deal with my daughter. <laughs> yeah, we will figure something out. I, I will respond to you. Um, you know who you are, and we will try and put something together and have one of those here in the next couple of weeks. So just wanted to address that. Um, okay, last piece here that I want to leave us with um, before we're actually done. The invitation of Jesus is not an invitation to go to heaven when we die. That doesn't mean we don't go to heaven when we die. But there is a real, robust, and life-giving invitation into love, into communion, that can actually and really be experienced among us here and now, where we can love God and love people in a way that's really life-giving to us and life-giving to them. We don't have to make this really complicated. It's pretty simple. Doesn't mean it's easy, <laughs> right? But it it's actually is really simple. And I think that that is the invitation that we're extending to the world. Come and see what we've seen. Come and taste what we've tasted. Come and partake of the bread of life with us because we have experienced something and we have to show you. You have to experience it yourself. And it doesn't just have to do with what happens next. It absolutely has to do with here and now. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about us, get coffee with a pastor or visit us on a Sunday, then go to redemptionhou.com. And please know today that you are fully loved and fully accepted just the way you are. We hope to hear from you soon.